what they got till it's gone. Like it or not, never love. We try to do what's right. We all here waiting for our silver invitation to the big band. Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm here with my Hall of Fame co-host and star of the show, Jim Cott, and this is Cott's Corner. We're on episode 170 right now, Jim. I can't believe it. Um, excited to do the show every week with you. We always, I think, provide great content for our audience, and you give us a unique insight of really living the life 360 degrees around this game as a player, coach, broadcaster, and now a Hall of Famer. So we appreciate you and what you bring to this this particular podcast. Want to want to talk to our audience first before we begin. Sixteen thousand five hundred subscribers to date. Want to remind you guys to download, listen, like, subscribe, and much like Major League Baseball, we battle the analytics of podcasting. So make sure you rate and review so we get credit for it. We can keep giving you providing you great content like we do here every week. Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. Those are our streaming apparatuses. If you have another one, let us know. I'll subscribe to that as well. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I do one public response every day, and I get back to everybody privately. A little over 350 questions today. I have not posted our public one yet. I was waiting till after our podcast today because I think we have a couple of topics that may resonate a, a great answer. 72 countries now from grassroots all the way up to Major League Baseball front offices, and all we're trying to do is build a better baseball IQ, and I think we do that here on this show every week, Jim. Welcome back to your show. Well, thank you so much. You're right, Dave. We have a lot to uh, talk about. I think maybe the uh, the top story is uh, is the Pittsburgh Pirates for a number of reasons. I mean, uh, just a great story about Drew Maggi after all those years in the minor leagues making a major league debut. Now, here's an interesting twist. Uh, they celebrated Drew's first at bat and his uh, advance to the big leagues as well they should. And it was really a highlight. Well, if you go back to 1967 and the Twins, my team, we were involved in a pennant race. And the rumor was we were going to get Elston Howard, but the Red Sox got him. So we called up Hank Esquerdo, who had been in the minor leagues for 16 years. And he was our number two catcher. And of course, we felt good for him, but we were disappointed that we didn't get Elston Howard because we needed him for the pennant race. So, uh, you know, Hank is one of those guys, as was Jim Morris, who they made the movie The Rookie right. after yeah. the former high school teacher. But it, it really, it resonated with me because we see so much self-celebration and meaningless, you know, situations where the team is behind 10 and it's all a look at me. And now here we have uh, a, a young man who is so grateful just to finally get to put on a big league uniform and have a big league at bat. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm thankful. I think I've told you before that one of my highlights of my life really was when Bruce Souter was inducted into the Hall of Fame and he had me stand up and say that he never played with anybody that took more pride in putting the uniform on every day. Uh, than Jim Cott. And man, that that brought uh, chills to me because you never take it for granted if you're a big leaguer. There's always somebody coming along that might be better. 
and you, you or injury and you have to really appreciate every day you get to play in the big leagues where there are thousands that would like to do it and there's only hundreds that get the opportunity to do it. Yeah, and it, uh, Drew spent, he's 33 years old now and uh, almost 5,000 at-bats I read in the minors. And what a story of perseverance just to dig it out that long because most guys get to a point when they're late 20s and they figure they're too old and um, get tired of riding the buses. Uh, wanna, they think they want to start a different life until they leave the field. But I was, I was so happy for him too. Uh, I thought it was a, you know, it was a great story, and, and I hope kids are watching that as well. To me, yeah. it's, it's a, you know, if you keep moving forward and you're willing to deal with the hits, eventually you're going to get what you want. I believe. You know, the the, the game is. Uh, we we talk about that. Those of us that love the horse business, horse racing, is that it's a blood disease, and it gets in your blood, and you can't get rid of it. And that's what baseball is for guys like Drew Maggi and. Hank Escardo and Jim Morris and other guys that that stuck it out. I remember years ago, I think there was a power hitter, Rick Lancelotti with the Red Sox, who was a career minor leaguer and, you know, finally got to play some in the big leagues. Uh, I, I believe he did. He had a couple of at-bats, but uh, uh, it's such a gratifying uh, story and, and uh, it help, warms your heart to see it. Yeah. How long did Hank stick in the majors? Do you remember? How many, what was stuck in me? How long did Hank stay in the majors? Did he, did he, did he stay beyond that one? No, yeah, that was it. He had, I think he had like 25 at bats and uh, Earl Batty was our number one catcher. He'd been hurt. Jerry Zimmerman was a terrific backup catcher. And in those days, of course, uh, playing for Calvin Griffith with the twins, uh, it was going to be win the cheapest way possible. So he was not going to splurge and get Elston Howard, and that's why he called up Hank, which was a nice moment for Hank. But that was his only stint in the uh, uh, big leagues just that last. I think he got called up the end of August, so he was there for about 30 days, and that was it. Yeah. Well, I'm sure he was proud to put on that big league uniform. I think it's, that's probably one of the greatest compliments you could get uh, from another ball player, say nobody wore the uniform prouder. Uh, and I think – most professions, and you think military in that regard as well, um, take a lot of pride in putting on that uniform. Yeah, I was so fortunate. I had good uh, managers in the minor leagues that instilled that in me, uh, like Del Wilbur, my manager at Charleston, who said uh, when I got called up the big leagues, he said, kid, you know, it's one thing to get there. It's another thing to stay there. That's the tough thing. And, uh, you know, there you look around at the thousands of guys that never make it. So, you know, be, be grateful for the opportunity to get there and, and stay there as long as you can. Yeah. I, I think your, your career is a story of perseverance as well. I mean, nobody's pitched, nobody pitched as long as you did. And we talk about it on the show each week. You have to be good, very good. That's an understatement. You have to stay healthy and you've got to be with the right people and the right teams. And, um, and, and be willing to roll with the punches. And I think your, your career, I'm glad it was rewarded with a very well-deserved Hall of Fame induction. And uh, I hope people look at your career and Drew Maggi's career and they see that there's, there's a lot of ways to make a difference in baseball. So, oh, um, yeah. Well, you know, in, in, uh, in my case, I think, of course, being left-handed, being able to throw strikes, but uh, uh, I think it was more, uh, it, sure, it's perseverance, but it's adjustment. If, if you don't learn as a young player 
that every year, I remember Eddie Lopat, uh, one of my first pitching coaches and one of my top two, along with Johnny Sane, and I had a good year in 1962. Uh, you know, 18 wins, tied Whitey for Whitey Ford for shutouts with five, had about 15, 16 complete games. So I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And he said, you know, you had a good year, but you're going to have to be twice as good next year to be as good as you were this year. So I had to scratch my head on that. What did he mean by that? Well, what he meant was you, you don't sit back on what you achieved in 1962. You have to move forward. Uh, Mickey Mantle knows what you have now. He's going to see on a regular basis. You better learn to adjust, maybe pitch him a little differently, maybe improve or add a pitch. So you have to continue uh, to try to get better. That's what has always impressed me with the times that I have met Max Scherzer in person because he's a guy who's got plenty of money, plenty of awards, but he works at getting better and better uh, all the time. Yeah. We've got a couple segues. Did, did you want to move into the, obviously Scherzer's involved with the rosin incident, but we, oh, yeah. ironically, we've got more pirate stuff to talk about. I've never, I never thought in a million years we'd be highlighted by the pirates here. Yeah. Well, let me, let me quickly first, while we're on the pirates, I think yeah. uh, I got a call last night, not name dropping, but my good friend, Bill Parcells and coach said, Hey, we really lost a great one today. Didn't we? And he was talking about Dick Grote. Now, some of the younger fans won't remember Dick Grote. Uh, he was a two-sport star. He, his shirt is hanging from the rafters in Cameron Stadium at Duke, All-American, yeah. Basketball Player of the Year. He was the MVP in 1960 for the Pirates. And get this, he hit two home runs and knocked in 50. Now, he hit 325. Now, how is a guy like that? an MVP. Well, if you followed the career of Pete Rose, you'll see a guy that didn't have a lot of power, didn't have speed, didn't have range, didn't have a strong arm, but he knew how to play baseball. And Dick Grote went right from the campus of Duke, right to the shortstop position with the Pirates in 1952. And the reputation he got was that he demanded every player play the game right way. You know, he, he really... He annoyed a few people with that, but he just wanted everyone to play the game the right way. Bun a man over, advance the runner, and that's what made him such a valuable player. Yeah, and if you looked at him stature-wise, even think about basketball, he was five foot eleven. Um, you don't yeah. see even back then. You don't see uh, guards uh, that small. And but yeah, right from Duke to the majors, which is rare um, at any era. But he's a he's a Hall of Famer collegiately in both baseball and basketball too. Yeah, and he, he really, uh, if you read his obituary, he he did not, basketball was his first love. He really didn't care that much for baseball. He said baseball was hard work, basketball was fun, but Branch Rickey talked him into coming and being a baseball player. He said, you'll have a longer career, and as he looked back on it, he said he was right, but in my mind, I really loved basketball more than baseball. Yeah, and, and again, I don't want to claim to be an expert on both. I, I've, I've done scouting in both, but honestly, he was right. He was a better basketball player than he was a baseball player. Yeah. Apologies. Much yeah. better. Well, segueing into Max Scherzer, I really got a chuckle out of what's going on. And uh, for those out there that are not that avid baseball fans and haven't followed it, of course, Max getting uh, ejected and suspended for 
a sticky glove and sticky hands. And in his words, he just used sweat and rosin. And I think that the umpire asked him to go in and wash his hands off, which he did. And I think he washed them off with alcohol. Well, see, I found out in the 60s, a lot of this stuff that's happening today, like the sweeper, the pitch the raven about, that happened back in the 60s and 70s, just had different terminology probably. But I found out one day I had some rubbing alcohol. I was rubbing something off my arm, my non-pitching arm, and all of a sudden I grabbed a rosin bag and it had a tacky substance to it. And I thought, wow, this is great. So I would put a, a, a little splash of alcohol on my pant leg, on my thigh, and then with a rosin bag, touch it. But it didn't last for a whole inning. It, it kind of dried up after a hitter or two. And of course, uh, alcohol is not a foreign substance. So uh, there's nothing illegal about doing that. So I don't know if, uh, if I think Max has a case. He opted not to appeal. Uh, I think you, you said that David Cohn did an experiment with rosin, was it with alcohol or uh, sweat? Yeah, just to just to kind of show how it exactly what you just said uh, that you experimented with by accident, um, and, and yours showed how it was a temporary tackiness on the fingers, and it wears off very quickly. And yeah, the, the, the natural, you know, the, the biggest problem I think Cone brought about, as did the, the it was the same umpire in all three of the issues um, that happened in Major League Baseball. I think the rule itself is very ambiguous where it leaves the umpire exposed to have to make a judgment call on something like that on the spot. And the biggest issue, I guess, is using their own rosin bags. Is there, I mean, did you have your own rosin bag and what's the benefits of that? I never had my own rosin bag, but of course I stretched, uh, I pushed the envelope and stretched the imagination. And I've told you that when I told Jim Honachick, the umpire, what I use is not a foreign substance. It's made in North Carolina. It's a domestic substance. So you, know, you, you, you want to get technical. Uh, you know, what is a foreign substance? Uh, the, the, the bigger issue back then was the, the pitcher's ability to scuff the ball, to deface it. And that obviously should carry some punishment, but there never was any, any punishment then. But yeah, it, it is... Uh, you know, and that leads us into, I, I understand by trying to do some research on this, that there is an experiment going on by Major League Baseball with a, you know, with a third company, third party to create a, a ball that has a tackiness to it, like uh, like they've used over in Japan. And I believe they used it in the Olympics. And I haven't heard any feedback that certainly hasn't been publicized very much, but I know in talking to Rob Manfred, uh, the commissioner, on more than one occasion, are we ever going to get a tacky ball where pitchers legally can can get a grip on the ball like hitters legally use pine tar gloves, pine tar on the gloves, uh, protective gear, all that stuff to help them out, mainly the pine tar to grip the bat better. Are pitchers ever going to get something that they can legally use to grip the ball better? Yeah. And I, I also heard about that. We chatted a little before the show at a former teammate of mine at a Southern league game and caught, got a foul ball. His kid did and couldn't believe the, uh, the difference in it. And in his mind, he first thought maybe it's just pine tar got on it or whatnot. Um, but he did his own little, not, I want to say investigating cause he wasn't trying to find anything out, but 
come to, to uncover as well that they're doing a little bit of an experiment down there in that league to to test it out. Um, just out of curiosity, how how is that affecting pitchers? Have you taken a look at the strikeout rates, or is, is anything? I've heard it? that I've heard that strikeouts are up, but you know, I've tried to read a lot of these uh, articles, and the internet can be dangerous. But I was trying to reading reading a lot of articles on the physics of it, uh, because I even uh, was having a conversation the other day after a round of golf with a young man who's an avid baseball fan and. And uh, also my good friend that I played with, non-baseball player. But uh, they did not realize that when they publish the spin rate, it's RPMs. It's revolutions per minute. Now, have you ever met anybody that can throw the ball and let it stay in the air for a minute? No. <laughs> no. It, it stays in the air for about uh, you know a couple seconds. Well, it, it's, it's so deceptive when they use RPMs because the ball from the time the pitcher releases it till it gets into the home plate area, it only turns around about 13 to 15 times. So how much additional spin is gripping the ball better giving the pitcher? Uh, I mean, I like to say I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm outspoken about it because a lot of us did it. And yes, it was against the rules. There wasn't any punishment uh, involved in it. But uh, I used pine tar. I used some tacky stuff to grip the ball better. Well, I gave up 4,500 hits in my career. So obviously, uh, it, it didn't do a lot to fool a lot of hitters. It just helped me grip the ball better. Yeah, and, and I've spoken before. I, I much prefer the pitcher have as good a grip as they can on that ball. When you're 60 feet, you know, you're, you're 60 feet, six inches away as a hitter, I want them to have as, as much command as they need, take as much time as you need to, to be sure about it. Yeah. What are other substances that were used? I mean, we, we watch, we hear things like the shine ball. The What were some other substances that were used in the past to, I guess. Well, slippery elm uh, was one that was used, you know, decades ago, and that would end up being a, a spitter. You know, the, the, the spitter and the reason for using the opposite of gripping it better would be in the Gaylord Perry days where, uh, you use Vaseline or something, and, and you held the ball on the skin part of the ball, not the seams, and it, it'd be like squirting a ping pong ball out of your fingers. It comes out with no spin. And then that gave it as the the aerodynamics, it, that gave it a little bit of a wobble, and then at the end it would drop down. So, And I found in Cleveland, in the old Cleveland ballpark, I could throw what I call a dry spitter. Now, that's quite the oxymoron, but... Their dirt on the mound was so fine and powdery that one day I reached down to grab the rosin bag and my index and middle finger hit the dirt and I was rough. I said, man, that's, that is so slippery. So I put it on the skin part of the ball and I threw a pitch and it acted just like a spitter. Well, there was nothing illegal about it, but uh, some pitchers wanted to, to, to do that, to take the spin off. And then the, the opposite would be, uh, to grip it with pine tar, get it to, to hopefully uh, you get a better grip on it when you throw it. Now, uh, you know, there were rumors in, in the year, I think even Whitey Ford has spoken out about it in his book where he, he had a wedding ring on his uh, index ring finger of his uh, glove hand and would kind of scuff the ball up a little bit. And uh, I think in more current times, there were a couple of Dodger pitchers that we used to collect the baseballs that had a, uh, a perfect little circle on the logo of the ball. Uh, they were using sandpaper. Uh, I think actually it was Tim Leary that caught 
got caught with a little piece of emery paper and he swallowed it on the way to the dugout. <laughs> and he, uh, so there have been cases like that where, you know, they're trying to get an edge. You know, different than uh, I think I mentioned hitters uh, corking the bat. Uh, I remember I was sitting in the bullpen in, in St. Louis in the early 80s and uh, a right-hand hitter hit a ball foul in the upper deck at Bush Stadium, which was unheard of. And I thought, how in the world uh, did he hit that ball that far? So I said to our catcher, the next time this hitter came up, I said, when he's running down bases, go over and take a look at his, the end of his bat. Well, it had a little circle about the size of a quarter, which indicated that they that was probably where they corked the bat. So that was the hitter's way of uh, of getting a little edge, which, again, was against the rules. Yeah. Did you ever experiment with a corked bat in batting practice to see the difference? No. No, I never did. I had neither. I, a teammate of mine tried it out. He had it corked with racquetballs. Yeah. And, and uh, the, he, he, it, it jumped. It was a significant jump off the bat. But, uh, yeah, the, these uh, – and we, we've seen it in Major League Baseball, too. I think Sammy Sosa got caught um, doing that as well. So. Hitters like to plead uh, innocence all the time with all the pitching stuff going on, but I think they're uh, they're they're trying some stuff out as well. Um, with the Southern League, I mean, I don't know how deep we can go into. We certainly don't want to um, get anybody or reveal any top secret stuff going on. But um, I, I'm asked. I asked my my teammate to send me the ball to see if I could just check it out. I don't know how much would stay on it, but I'm curious just to see the significance of the tackiness. Have you, have you seen it all touched it? I mean, no, I haven't. I've, I've, I've put some calls into major league baseball to see, you know, what the feedback is. If, if actually they're, they've got results, uh, you know, and then again, you're talking about, uh, double a pitchers, uh, with no disrespect, but, uh, they're probably not going to have the same natural stuff that big league pitchers are. And also with the hitters, Hitter, hit, uh, batters that are swinging and missing in double A may not be doing that in the big leagues. So, uh, you know, from that standpoint, I don't know if it's a fair test. Yeah, I wonder what exactly they're pinpointing in that. And I didn't ask you this last week, but there's a lot of experimenting going on with the minors. Are you okay with that as Major League Baseball using our our minor leagues as a almost like a lab to test out new things. Well, I, I am in the lower minors. I, I am in the lower minors where if they're, if they're teaching them to play with the big league rules, which I've, I've said a long time ago, they should have started the pitch clock and enforced keeping one foot in the batter's box, maybe even taking batting gloves away, whatever changes they want to make, do it in the minor leagues so that by the time these players get to the big leagues, it's ingrained in them. And I, I, I mentioned I saw that last year when I was doing a Tiger Twins telecast. And the Tiger pitchers, uh, all the starters that uh, wrote that uh, series had been called up from the big leagues, or from AAA to the big leagues. And they were really working at a fast pace. And I remember seeing Dan Petrie, one of the former Tiger pitchers, I said, boy, your pitchers are getting after it. And he said, well, yeah, they, they all came up from the minor leagues, and that's where they were using the pitch clock. So I, I think it's beneficial to, uh, to do that in, in the minor leagues, uh, you know, to get them accustomed to the rules that they're going to have to be 
using when they get to the big leagues. Yeah. How about things like the tacky ball? Or I know in one of the leagues, they experimented with the distance on the mound, uh, from the mound to the plate. I don't like that. Yeah. I don't like the distance on the mound, no. Uh, uh, the tacky ball, yeah. If, they, if, if we want to find a, uh, a tacky ball that we don't have to have issues like we had with Max Scherzer, I mean, fans come out to the ballpark uh, to see the stars. And my, when my friend Bill White was the National League president, you know, what, what hurt him was that the Players Association had certain ceilings on what you could fine a player. And what Bill wanted to do, he said, I never want to suspend a player because of, uh, uh, if you suspend a star player, the fans come to the ballpark and they want to see that star. So don't suspend them, fine him. And when it starts costing him money, he's going to feel that a little bit more than, you know, sitting out a few games. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I, I think that... Uh, uh, that that would be more, you know, more beneficial. Yeah. And it's kind of flows into our, one of our next topics here about fans coming to the ballpark to see stars. Uh, there's some successful teams right now, teams that some teams we thought would win others uh, like the pirates who are, uh, winning unexpectedly, I think this year, but, um, attendance does not reflect or is not, I guess, growing with the success. Have you noticed that? Yeah, as well? it's, uh, it seems like it's going back to, uh, I remember my first win in Yankee Stadium against the Yankees in Whitey Ford in April of 1960. There were a little less than 4,000 people at that game. You know, games weren't on television. It was a cool day. But the point was, fans didn't really start coming out to the game, particularly day games until school was out and the weather got warmer. So, you know, again, that gives credence to the fact that the, the season really is too long. Minnesota's had to play through some very cold weather. Uh, you look at the Pirates, who are on a roll. They play the Dodgers, attractive team. They had 11,000. Tampa Bay pay, played Houston, the uh, world champions. Tampa with the best record in baseball. They had 9,000. Uh, the Twins last night had 12,000. So I think that, you know, uh, the game is on a more positive trend than we've ever, we've seen it for quite a few years, but still there's not, with the overlapping season, probably the NFL draft gets more attention than uh, a lot of the Tampa Bay fans, you know, yeah. so yeah. I, uh, I think it, I, I think it, uh, it just screams of uh, why not make the baseball season shorter and uh, fans would kind of appreciate a hundred games that come to see their stars The stars wouldn't get injured, probably be healthier for all the players. But uh, again, you and I think that way, but it's fantasy. It's not going to happen. Well, with, with the game being popular, what would be some factors as to why attendance is so low? I think the weather and, and early in the year and, um, Again, some of them may be staying at home watching it on television. I know what's really added to attendance in, in recent years is the promotions that they have. I did uh, David Wells' perfect game. I think it was in May of, was it 97? And uh, it was Beanie Baby Day. And a lot of fans came in the stands, got their Beanie Baby, and went back home. Oh, <laughs> and he stayed and watched the whole game. So the attendance showed, you know, 40-some thousand. Uh, you know, the Phillies last night, 30-some thousand, the Braves. So there, there's certainly 
markets that are doing well, but uh, there's also, it, it'd be interesting to see after a couple months what the overall attendance is, even though the interest, I think, uh, and the fan appeal of the game is, is at a, a high that we haven't seen for a while. I would have to imagine it grows a little bit during the summer months when the kids are out of school as well. Yeah, you, you have a combination there of the kids being out and also promotion and busloads of little league teams coming in to see a game. Nice, nice warm weather. I know I, we, we both played in the cold at, at times, but playing in the cold is tough to do and sometimes not fun. But I would imagine sitting there watching a game in the cold is not, not appealing. Yeah, yeah the, the best thing to be on a cold day is a pitcher. I remember the hitters in those cold days in Minnesota, oh, you know, and getting hit on the handle of a bat. And, and I, I kind of relish that because if you had, and in those days, uh, younger and a little bit more life on my fastball, I thought the pitcher had a, a real advantage because he's always moving. You know, we're always moving. We're always in motion. The guy standing out there in the outfield for eight or ten pitches, he's the one getting cold. Yeah. I always thought if you, if you made everybody experience that 40 or 50 degree day with a bat in their hands, bunting would come back. Uh, I yeah. was, was sure a during those cold days. Yeah. So, but, uh, well, yeah, are there, you know, with, with the, the pirates now, the pirates are winning. Um, you know, we, we mentioned them. Uh, we talked a little bit about Dick Grote. Um, they, they just signed Brian Reynolds to a long-term deal. Did you see that? Yeah, that's that's good. I mean, the pirate owner, because uh, I have a lot of friends up in Vermont that are pirate fans, and uh, he's never been known to to spend a lot of money to improve uh, the team. It, it is too bad because they've really had some good ball clubs over the years, going back to uh, when I played against them when they had Pops, you know, Willie Stargell and Parker and those great teams, and they had Barry Bonds and Bonilla a little later. So uh, unfortunately, the it's the way it is today. If you don't spend the money. Um, you know, players don't want to stay and be part of the solution. They want to go to a team where they can win. So I think Derek Shelton, who was uh, a fixture in the Twins organization for a while, well-respected baseball man, I think he has created a, a different culture there, which is helpful. You know, I know he addressed the team early in the year and said, this is not going to be like any other year. You know, this is not going to be well, we're in the middle of a rebuild. No, we're going to try to win. And Good. so far it's uh, – yeah, they're doing it. They have a beautiful ballpark, great city. Um, yeah. You know, I think it could really blow up if they put their emphasis on keeping players like Brian Reynolds. Just comes there, he does his job, switch hitter, center fielder, sometimes left, you know, early lineup guy. Um, he's, I think he's an old school kind of player. You don't see him jumping around celebrating on hits. He gets, you know, he runs the bases hard. And we see a lot of that, though, nowadays. We talk a little bit about it on some of our other shows. I don't know that we've hit on it a ton here, but I know your feelings on it. Are you seeing, are you, you're noticing and turned off by a lot of the look at me celebrations? Yeah, out there? There, there's too much of these artificial celebrations. I see where it was the Braves now were using a called the big hat or the top hat. And of course they, they were asked to stop using it because new era, the cap company is a sponsor of the caps and they don't want them doing that. But I don't understand. Uh, and I go back to the case of Drew Maggi, where he's so appreciative of getting to the big leagues and getting in at bat and the, big leagues. And I look at Derek Jeter and Kirby Puckett, two players that I covered for years. And, uh, you know, when you saw them go about their job and, and they got a double or a home run in a key situation, sure, there's some spontaneous celebration. But this 
this getting on second base with your team down five and you're eight games out of first and pounding your chest and jumping up and down, I don't get it. Uh, I think you ought to stand there and just say, I'm pretty grateful that I'm actually getting to play in the big leagues. And uh, so some of them that are choreographed and not spontaneous. And we've seen some injuries from them. Yeah. You know, uh, Kendry Morales, the DH, uh, uh, years ago, stomping on home plate. And then, uh, of course, with Edwin Diaz in the World Baseball Classic. So there's plenty of time. I, I remember when the Yankees won, the beat us up in Minnesota in 62, I believe, to clinch the pennant. Jim Bouton was the pitcher. And after they after they won the game, it's like they shook hands and went in the clubhouse like it was just another game that they had won. And then, of course, there's celebration in the clubhouse, which you'd expect. But uh, uh, to me, there's a lot more important things and there's a lot more things you ought to be looking at when you're uh, when you're a player. You get on second base and I think of guys like uh, like Pete Rose and Dick Grote that didn't have the athleticism, but they had a baseball IQ. When they rounded first, they were looking of a way to get to second. And then when they got to second, they knew where the outfielders would play. Okay, if the ball's hit here, I can score. If it's hit there, I might not be able to. Those are the things you ought to be looking around at yeah. instead of running down the line and looking into the dugout and celebrating with your with your teammates. That's for later. Yeah, there's there's a difference between real enthusiasm and choreographed um, reality TV, I like to call it, out there that look at me. Were there certain ones that caught your eye as just being, I guess they're all somewhat egregious, but um, I noticed Fernando Tatis the other day, he he got into it with the fans uh, doing a little dance out there. Did you happen to catch that? I didn't catch that one. Uh, I, I catch some that are, I mean, the only player really that uh, I remember, Willie Montanez, uh, who was at first baseman with the Phillies and the Giants, and when he hit a home run, uh, we, we had this expression, he liked to cut the pie. You know, he'd drop his bat, but he'd make a big circle around the bases. As he, as he was running around the bases, he would say to the infielders, I know they're going to knock me down the next time, but I don't care because I go celebrate anyway. So he knew what was coming. Yeah. Where, where does it, I guess, it, I see it at the youth levels, but the youth imitate the adults who in your mind should be responsible for putting a stop to that or at least addressing it or curbing it in, on a baseball club? Well, it should be managers and it should be the, the ball club. Uh, I don't know whether this started. I know the, the celebration line where they shake hands after a game. I mean, I was trying to think of when that actually started. And I think it was because we have a lot of players, uh, a lot more players now coming to the big leagues out of college programs uh, that we did before. And that seemed to be where some of those celebrations uh, started. Um, But, uh, you know, as long as they're spontaneous, uh, you know, you can understand that. There's nothing wrong with feeling good about what you've done and uh, celebrating. But I think of, you know, my favorites were Ichiro and Hideki Matsui. Uh, the, The Asian players have such respect for the game. Uh, that they don't get caught showing off at all or doing anything that look at me. And I've always, I've always kind of admired them for that. Yeah. And I know obviously there's a different, there's different with, with cultures. The Latin players tend to be a little bit more uh, boisterous uh, in their celebrations and and whatnot, but we're seeing it take a a whole nother level. Anytime you have uh, props involved, it takes some thought, you know, with, with what's going on. We saw the hat 
And I kind of laughed when you talked about New Era. New Era wasn't offended from a baseball standpoint. They were offended from a marketing and, and money yeah, standpoint. Yeah, exactly. We were, right. we were offended. I think, I think, too, it's the manager. I'm, I'm thinking Tom Kelly, who would probably be the most modern manager uh, that would have been, if he were uh, managing a team that did that, uh, he would object immediately. And I know the Twins, during TK's era, where they won two World Series titles with a very modest payroll, they always had the respect around the league of playing hard for nine innings, regardless of the score. And uh, they always treated the game with respect. And I think that's because in the minor leagues, Tom Kelly had Kirby Puckett and Gary Gaetti and Kent Herbeck and Greg Gagne. And he taught them how to act and how to play the game. And that carried on right to when they were in the big leagues. And where's the disconnect nowadays? Is it a lack of veteran leadership too? I, I just think it's, it's a, it, it seems to be, well, that's the way it is. And uh, so if the players on the field and the managers and, and the staff are not offended by it, then that's fine. I mean, I'm not going to change the game. It's just a personal opinion that I would like to see the game, uh, you know, treated with a little more respect, I guess would be the, the right word. And uh, I think I've told you the story about uh, Willie McGee, my teammate in St. Louis, and and when Willie began to become a star there at 82 and he'd hit a home run and he'd sprint around the bases and he'd, he'd get in, sit down next to me in the bed. I said, Willie, you just hit a home run. You know, you can trot. He said, no. He said, you know, uh, that pitcher feels bad enough already. I don't even want him to know who hit it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the last thing he would do would be celebrate. Yeah, I don't blame him. I, you know, I, I usually think I'm pretty good at being empathetic and seeing the other side. I, I honestly have had a hard time with this myself and um, I guess I'm getting older too. I just turned 50 last week. So I'm uh, I guess I can be considered old school in, in that regard, but I have a hard time speaking the other side right now. Um, I don't see where, I think there's a line that's been crossed between fun and um, turning it into a circus. Uh, you know, it's uh, I love the globe trotters. I love the Savannah bananas. I think they have a place in the game, but, when you go to one of those things, you're expecting to see that stuff. When you go to a baseball game, in my mind, you're expecting to see baseball. Right. Well, I, you know, you look at it as age 50. Here I am, 84. And that's why I'm, I'm separated. For the first time in 63 seasons, I'm not involved in anything on the field. I'm not announcing games. I went to spring training for a couple of days with the, with the Twins to meet and greet uh, Minnesota fans and so forth had nothing to do. I, I don't, there's no need for me to even go in the clubhouse other than to say hello to a few people. But so I understand that the game is different. I'm not going to change it. I just want to stand back and watch it and follow it. Uh, I don't enjoy watching it as, as much as I did years ago. I was thinking back to my times. I was so fortunate to cover the 98 Yankees were probably the best and most professional team in the last few decades that I've seen. Uh, you know, they played the game the right way. That's the team that had Tino Martinez and uh, Mariano Duncan, then Chuck Knobloch before throwing problems, Derek Scott Brocious, uh, uh, Bertie Williams, Paul O'Neill, and they had great stars. You know, David Cohn, El Duque came along. You had Joe Girardi behind the plate. You had Joe Torre managing and Don Zimmer as bench coach. You had some real pros. And I just liked the way they played the game and the way they carried themselves. And uh, 
I just think they were the model for doing everything right. What were some specifics that you liked when you, when you say you liked the way they played the game? Well, I think that year they had, I believe they led the league in sacrifice flies. And they were such good two-strike hitters. They all had, I, I think of uh, Bernie when he was a left-hand hitter, Paul O'Neill, Tino. You get them with men on and, and a, and a one-two count, two-two count. They got more balls. They got more hits to the opposite field. Uh, man on second, nobody out. They made more what I call productive outs, outs that advanced runners. Well, be careful. These analytics people will get mad at you about that. There's no well, <laughs> the analytics crowd. Foreheads. Yeah. Well, you know <laughs> that that leads us to something else. There was such a great uh, article in the Golf Global Post by Jim McCabe, which which is my favorite golf uh, magazine, non-line magazine. And he, he did a piece on Luke Donald about the artistry of Luke Donald. And he mentioned, he said, you know, we're living in shallow times. We don't appreciate what we see. We'd rather look at something that spits, uh, spits out numbers on a, on a spreadsheet. So I started thinking about it. You know, there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. And the analytics people have knowledge that they pass on. They've got all these reams of statistics that say, in this situ, you know, this is how you should pitch. I go back to what Robin Roberts said. Uh, how do you pitch Willie Mays? Well, the propeller heads would say, well, uh, you know, you have thrown breaking balls down the way, blah, blah, blah. That's knowledge. Wisdom is when Robin Roberts says, tell me the score, the inning, and the count. I'm going to pitch Willie Mays different, differently in the third inning uh, of, a, of a game where we're leading five to nothing than I am in the eighth inning with a tie score and the count three and one. So all those things, now that's wisdom. And so the analytics people provide you with knowledge, but the only way you acquire the wisdom is to get out there between the lines and experience it and play and find out what works for you. Oh, I love that. That's a great way to, to uh, cap off our podcast today, I, 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 that phrase I love to hit on all the time is we're, we're, we're drowning in information, but we're starving for wisdom. We've got yeah, so much now we don't know what to do with it. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, the science and the math, we, we, I had a, a nice chat with Todd Hollinsworth yesterday, a former Dodger Rookie of the Year, and he hit on a point with the science. And he's, he actually turned 50 last week as well. Sorry, Todd, that I revealed that. But um, – he he is uh, he's concerned about all of the science and all of the math, even though he said there's an appreciation for it on his end to some degree. But he feels like we're losing the feel of the game because of it. And, and I asked him, I said, do you feel like we're losing that sense of awe? Is that why the fans don't want to go, don't like to watch, that we've gotten so caught up in the science that we've lost that sense of awe that we get from great baseball? Yeah, that would be, uh, you know, I've got great respect for Todd. I, that name first came across my scorecard when I was doing Arizona Fall League games back in the 90s, and he was a top prospect then. And I think, is he still doing Marlins games? He was doing, yeah, he's uh, he's connected with, with the Marlins now. He was yeah. doing Cubs games, I believe, prior to that. And, um, yeah, I think what the pitch clock has done is it has created uh, an atmosphere where players are forced to use their skill and their intuitive skills rather than step out of the box or off the mound and start overthinking things. Uh, and, and that's probably what the, uh, certainly to, to me, Jim Beatty, who was a teammate of mine uh, with the 
with the Yankees in the late 70s and uh, went on to become uh, a general manager as well as a scout, Dartmouth grad. And he and I play a little golf. And, and uh, so I said, well, give me your take on analytics because you were just being overwhelmed with them. And he said, they belong in the front office and not on the playing field because you, I can see where you can use them to evaluate talent. Tampa, I think, has done such a great job. Uh, they had Diego Castillo. They had a Fairhausen, I believe. They had three or four relievers who were lights out for like three years. And then they got rid of them. Now they have a whole new crop of relievers. So evidently, they have been able to tell this guy's losing a little off his fastball. He's losing a little off his slider. And so that's when they unload him. So I think that's when, when they can, that's where it can really be of value. I was thinking of Chris Sale, who had another tough game the other day, and then he had a brilliant one before that. But I saw what Steve Carlton went through late in his career. Uh, it isn't the velocity you, you, you lose. It's the sharpness of your breaking ball. And Lefty had that wipeout slider that, you know, they couldn't hit for years. And then all of a sudden we saw hitters begin to take it, begin to foul it off. And Alex Cora said the other day, yeah, they put some good at-bats on them. They were fouling off those pitches. Well, see, three, four years ago they swung and missed. So is there something in the analytics that they're tracking that can show Chris where he's losing a little off that, and maybe you go to becoming more of a an off-speed pitcher like Pedro Martinez had that knack of becoming a real effective pitcher even when he lost a lot of his power. That's what made him so special. Uh, so those, those are areas where I think analytics uh, can be very helpful. Those are great points. Um, if somebody loses, let's say, the bite off that breaking ball, I mean, you, do you have to become an, a completely different pitcher, or is there a pitcher pitch that you can replace? Well, it with? I would, I would think if I would love to have the information that they have with Rapsodo. If I found out all of a sudden that maybe uh, my curveball was losing, uh, you know, a little bit of spin, if they tracked it during the warmups or something, well, you know, I was basically fastball, curveball, overhand curve, but then we changed speeds on each pitch, so we would turn, you know, two pitches into four. Right now, they're big. They say, oh, we got the new pitch, the sweeper. No, that's not new. Years ago, we had fastball, curveball. The slider was like a cutter. And then we started throwing this pitch that was uh, not as big as a curve and not as big as a slider, but it had a bigger break than a slider. So we call it a slurve. Now they're calling it a sweeper. Yeah, I would always use it to left-hand hitters, particularly if I was ahead in the count one and two, because you could throw it at them. And it would sweep across the plate and end up sometimes outside. To a right-hand hitter, it was a dangerous pitch, so I would only use it. I would throw it well outside and hope I could bring it in and catch the outside corner. Uh, and we didn't call it a sweeper. We called it a slurve. But I think that's where the analytics and the rapsodo and the spin and all of those things can, or your arm angle, whatever you're doing, I think that can, can show you things that uh, – uh, you got to be careful not to get too wrapped up on it, which we've seen a lot of golfers get so wrapped up in mechanics that all of a sudden they've, they've lost their feel for playing golf. And same yeah. thing to do with pitching. That paralysis through analysis will yeah. help you into any sport. I just flinched when you were talking about your your sweeping pitch. I was thinking of myself as a, I'm a switch batter, so I'd be hitting right-handed. 
I, uh, I guess I'm, I'm telling now, but it doesn't matter because I'm, I'm done playing. But you throwing that so it almost landed on my back foot. That would have made me buckle a little bit. Yeah, they, if you have a real – but still, it has to be a sharp one. You know, yeah. pitchers will say throw them a back foot. Well, when Steve Carlton had that back foot slider, yeah, they – you know, if they took it, it was a strike, it seemed like. But it, it looked like it was probably a very hittable pitch – eight, 10 feet from home plate, and then it would just dive down to that back foot. But once you lose a little of that, uh, as I did with my slider, I tell the, the story of the late Bob Watson, uh, Whitey seldom had me stay in and face a right-hand hitter. I might face Claudel Washington, Chris Chambliss, left-hand hitters like that with the Braves. And then one day, Bob Watson uh, pinch hit. And I got him two and two, and I thought, you know, very quickly – I don't have a very good breaking ball, uh, fastball changeup. He's he's a lethal fastball hitter. I'm going to try to throw him the hardest slider I can on the outside corner. So I did, and he swung and missed. And he sees me the next day around the cage, and he said, "Hey, when did you come up with that changeup?" See, yeah. that that was my hard slider, but it wasn't a hard slider anymore. It came in and it fooled them like it was a changeup. So if I knew that kind of stuff from analytics, it would, you know, it would kind of teach me how to, how and when to use those pitches. Yeah, and I think that's the, the dialogue that you're having out loud right now is I think the dialogue that may be missing a little bit from baseball where there's a disconnect between the numbers and the feel for the game. And yeah. I wish that people with the numbers would sit down with somebody like yourself and hear what you're saying. And I know we've got their ear with the podcast, so I'm hoping they're listening and, and maybe yeah. even reach out because this is the stuff that that's the space between the notes that we need right now. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. I think that's where, gosh, the game just misses Pete Rose. He would have so much to offer in terms of his baseball knowledge and, uh, they don't tap into it that much. I was in spring training and sitting at the table with Rod Carew and Tony Oliva and Paul Molitor, and I said to the guys, you know, what exactly are we doing here? And they looked at me and they laughed and said, we really don't know because they're there and they're a presence, but nobody really taps into their, uh, you know, what they have. They have a brilliant young minor league instructor, and I think he's managerial material, Tucker Frawley. And he played for my friend John Stuper in, at Yale. And I think Tuck is, is one that sat down. He's trying to pick my brain about dirt and certain things. And I said, you know, that's refreshing because you're trying to find a way to blend the athletics with some of the actual game experience that those of us learned what worked and what didn't work. So I, I hope there are more guys like that around. Yeah, I do too. And, you know, you, you couldn't look at three different kinds of approaches to hitting and all successful where you had Tony Oliva, as you see it, you hit it. And uh, Paul Molitor had that real quiet kind of stance where it was yeah, almost almost a no stride. And then you yeah. had Rodney, who was a man of a thousand stances, who yeah. moved around in the box, pitch to pitch at bat to at bat. And that weird, that flat back kind of yeah. it a lot, moved it around. Yeah. So, yeah, I would think that would be for me. That I don't know if those guys would have ever gotten out of the table if I was. I know. I know it's it's surprising, but uh, yeah, it's just uh, it's a different it's a different approach. They look at it differently today. Well, I, kind of on that note, and this may be a good way to cap off. I've had you for almost an hour, and I always appreciate your time, as does the audience. Um, 
if you had messages out there to, to young coaches like Tucker Frawley, because to me, those are the guys that when they do get managerial jobs, all the stuff we talked about today, the, the integration of analytics with feel for the game, the celebrations, the, you know, the unnecessary ones, um, moving the game back to, you know, where we have productive outs, all the things we talked about today, um, and open-mindedness about new things like, you know, tacky baseballs. Um, what, what message would you have to guys like Tucker Frawley's to encourage them if they're, you know, behind the scenes, afraid to approach a, you know, a Jim Cott or somebody with knowledge, what would, what advice would you have to them? Well, I, I was glad that on the suggestion of John Stuper, because John used a lot of stuff that, that I passed on to him uh, in his coaching at Yale. And so I had a built-in kind of an entree with Tuck. And I, I think that when there's, when there's players, and I, I think Tucker would do that. I know he's done it with Molly, Paul Molitor. When you're there in spring training and you got players who have had the experience, and it's not necessarily tell you how how – well, we did things. A lot of what we learned was how poorly we did things and how not to do them anymore. And, you know, ask questions, pay attention, try to find out as much information as I, I couldn't wait to. I even when I was coaching the Reds, I took Tom Browning uh, over to see Fernando Valenzuela to get a little tip on how he threw a screwball. So watch the guys that do things well, learn from them, ask questions. And then I, I think if you're going to be involved in the game today, you, you just have to understand you're going to be beholden to the analytics department. Uh, I think we found that out with uh, Mike Schilt in St. Louis. I mean, they win like 19 games in a row and he gets fired because he didn't drink the Kool-Aid. Uh, so there, there's a blend there where you have to you have to pay attention or use some of it. I know Buck Showalter, he'll listen to it, but nobody's going to tell him how to run his game on the field. And uh, fortunately, Buck has the reputation, the experience. He can do that where a guy like Tucker, and there are probably others like him, have to, uh, uh, you know, kind of have to suck it up and listen to it and then eventually learn how to do it their way. Yeah. And if there are organizations, like you mentioned, Tampa, that are blending it well, especially in regard to pitching, as you mentioned, but even they have great young stars like Wander Franco. I mean, that's, yeah. he's one of the, the the greatest specimens to watch in sports right now. Boy, he is. He, you know, and when they traded Willie Adamas, they thought, wow, Willie was pretty good shortstop for him. But a lot of people didn't know here they had Wander Franco come along. Yeah. Traded an all-star for a superstar. Yeah. So, well, uh, Jim, I appreciate all that you've given us today and in the audience is anything else you want to leave our audience with or no, I think, you know, show up and watch the game and I, I hope attendance uh, improves. I hope these teams like the pirates can keep it going. It would be so good for baseball. Uh, and it would, you know, it would prove that you don't have to spend uh, $300 million that if you put the right combination of players and mainly if you have a good bullpen, like uh, is it David Bednar for the Pirates, who's been lights out? Yeah. It still comes down to who do you have those last three innings that can dominate the game? And uh, that's where most of them are won or lost. Yeah, it's great. These, these small market teams can compete on a regular basis. It's starting to happen in basketball as much as I cringe watching that sometimes, and it happens in football too. So maybe baseball will turn the corner with that as well. But uh, Well, thank you again, Jim. We appreciate what you do on Cots Corner here and to our audience, 16,500 subscribers. Download, listen, like, subscribe. And hey, we've come around to the analytics with the podcast world. We want you to rate and review. We want those numbers as well. 
Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher. Um, hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. We're in 72 countries now, grassroots to MLB front offices, just trying to build a better baseball IQ. Um, and I, I kind of laughed when you said those people showed up for their Beanie Babies and went home. Um, most <laughs> Some of our kids in the audience won't know what Beanie Babies are. Check on eBay. They can find right. out. They are. But if you do get a Beanie Baby, stay at the game, for God's sakes. Yeah. Um, but thanks again, Jim. This is Cots Corner, episode 170 right now. And we thank you, and we'll see you next week. Look forward to it, Dave. Thanks. Till it's gone, like it all.